morning. Uh, already tell that this crew is a little livelier than the nine o'clock crew. Uh, so, guys got to sleep in, you know, a little bit, and you know, get your breakfast and get everybody situated, right? So, okay, maybe it's just more people in the room. I don't know. I'm gonna stop being awkward and preach. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was speaking with uh, Sean a couple of weeks ago about what just might be the most helpful uh, in us spending some time together today uh, just preaching and talking to you guys. Uh, and so, um, you know, what we had uh, decided on was that it would be helpful that uh, if I would just talk a little bit about why we plant churches. Uh, so now as a church planner, uh, and it can be easy to forget, like, okay, why do, we, why do we even do this? Why do we plant churches? Why do we start churches? And so that's what I want to talk with you guys a little bit about today. Um, <clears throat> a big passion of mine, and I think a big passion of this current generation, and I hope is a big passion here at Treasury in Christ Church, is uh, answering one question, okay? And that one question is why? Uh, I think this is vitally important if you want to spread the gospel, if you want to spread affection for Jesus, if you want to plant churches, if you want to be a church, you need to be able to answer this question to this generation. Why do you do what you do? Um, and that is vitally important. And so uh, there's a lot of areas in the Christian life where we could ask that question. Okay, why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? You know, why do we share our faith? But what we're talking about today is why do we plant churches? Okay, why do we see the need to start new churches? Um, and so um, I begin that question by asking another question. And that would be this, is do we believe what Jesus says in Matthew 16? Do we believe what he says in Matthew 16? Now, some of you might be asking, okay, what does he say in Matthew 16? Well, this is where we see an interaction between Peter and Jesus, and Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am, right? And then some people say, oh, you're John the Baptist. Well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're a great prophet. And then Jesus asks very directly, okay, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter, you know, the bold man that he is, says, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, yes, you've, you've answered correctly. Only my father could have revealed this to you. And then he goes on after he says that, and he says, and I will build my church through you, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so this, I believe, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, is the foundation for why the apostles saw the need to plant churches. They saw the need to plant churches because they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He was the Son of the living God. And that he promised that he would build his church through his people. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. They saw this as a necessity. They saw this as their response to this declaration. So answering the question of why we see the need to plant churches is asking ourselves, do we believe what the early apostles believed? Do we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do we believe that? Do we believe those things? That's the question we have to ask ourselves when we start asking about why church planting. Therefore, what I want to 
do today is give you about four reasons why I think we should still plant churches today, why we should still start churches. But before I get into those four reasons, I want to tie a bow on this sermon, like one big idea that you can take home with you, okay? So if you remember anything today, this is what I want you to remember, okay? When we plant the seed of the gospel in every corner of the earth, we watch Christ grow churches, okay? That's the main thrust of today, is when we plant the seed of the gospel in every corner of the earth, we watch Christ grow churches out of it. And what we're planting everywhere is the seed of the gospel. So for the first reason of why we plant churches, the first, the first I call the hermeneutical reason. And some of you are immediately saying like, whoa, 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 here seminary grad. Hermeneutical reason? What is hermeneutics? What does that mean? fairly simple here. Okay, let's break this down. It's not complicated. Hermeneutics is the art and science of studying the Bible. Okay, it's an art and a science. Okay, it's a science because there's rules to it, but it's art because, you know, it takes, you know, some artistic talent, some creativity to try to get the Bible down. Okay? So before we can understand why planting churches is important, we need to understand what the Bible is saying. If you don't know what the Bible says, then there's no reason going out and starting to plant churches. <laughs> You may be doing something the Bible's telling you not to do. So let's make sure we've got the hermeneutical reason down. So there's some basic principles or questions that you need to ask when you're trying to understand the Bible. So let me give you, you know, three and a half questions that you need to ask of every text. The first, the most important question, I teach this to our people at Refuge all the time, it's the most important question that you've got to ask of every text, is what does this passage tell me about God? Okay? First, most important question of every text in the Bible. What does this teach me about God? Okay, it's in the Word where we learn what to ascribe to God, as Ben was saying as he led us up here. Right? It's in the Bible that we learn the attributes, the character of God. The second question that we need to ask ourselves here is, how did the original audience understand this passage? The first is, what does the passage tell me about God? And what did the original audience understand from this passage? And then kind of a sub-point to that question is, what did they do with that passage in their time? Right? During their time, what did they do with it? So they understood it, then what did they do with it? And then the third question, it's an important question. It's most important, it's the first one. But the third, but sadly, the third one I'm going to give you here usually becomes the first one. Okay, And that is, what do I do with this passage in my time? Okay, Now I'm telling you, that's the least important. It's important, but it's the least important. Okay, You've got to get those first two down before you're going to understand what a passage means and what you're supposed to do with a passage. Okay, So don't skip in the hermeneutical process, in the understanding the Bible process. So when it comes to church planning, let's consider one passage. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew 28. Many of you are probably familiar with this text. It is many times referred to as the Great Commission text. Matthew 28, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. So we're going to 
kind of try to go through those questions as we examine this text. So Matthew 28, verse 17 says this. It says, when they saw him, that is Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So let's, let's try this hermeneutic. What does this passage tell us about God? Well, now there's a lot of things that we could meditate on, you know, and dwell richly in this text and glean about God. We could see, oh, God is always with me. God has commands. He does, com- you know, he commands things. You know, we could, there's a lot of ways we could go about understanding this passage of what it says about God. But I wanna, what I want to hone in here is, is that this passage claims that Jesus is God. <laughs> Very simple. Right? I know that may seem a bit reductionistic to some people or simplistic, but it's simply there in the text. That the, what we see here is clearly the original author and the original audience thought of Jesus as God. Matthew, who is a Jewish author, the audience at this time is a Jewish audience that is reading this, that are, who are in this experience. This is a bunch of Jewish disciples. Okay, And for a Jew to worship someone would have been idolatry unless they believed he's God. (laughs) So in verse 17, what does it say? They saw him and they worshipped him. This is a claim to the deity of Christ. They believe he is God because they worship him. If that doesn't convince you enough, skip down to verse 18. And Jesus came to said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. No, there's only one person who has all authority in heaven and earth, and that is God and God alone. So what they believe about Jesus is that Jesus is God. Any good Jew who was reading this passage would have realized that. So this is a claim... This passage is claiming the divinity or the deity of Christ. So in the light of Jesus being God, what did they see here? Jesus gives a command. Go, therefore, I'm God. I'm telling you what to do. I'm the creator of the universe. I made you. I formed you in your mother's womb. I saved you. I redeemed you through the blood of my son. Now I've got a command for you. Go, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do all that I've commanded. So what did the disciples, what was their response? What did they do in light of this understanding? They went and made disciples. They baptized people. And they taught people all that Jesus commanded. Right? Simple enough. Go over to the book of Acts. How do we see them respond to this great commission? They go out. They say, hey, Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world. People accept this message that he is the Christ, he's the Son of the living God. They baptize them, and then they teach them. They continue to teach them what it means to follow in Jesus' teachings. Once they did this, 
they went out. We see in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? They devote themselves to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to, to prayer. And so we can imagine this, these little groups of people coming together. They accept. They make disciples. Okay? And I notice you can be a disciple there in Matthew 28, verse 19. You can be a disciple before you're baptized. Okay? <laughs> all right? So you're a disciple first, then you're baptized, and then you teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. So it's not about coming and having get all of Jesus' commands down before you come to be a disciple, and then you get baptized. No, that, that all happens. Baptism is the symbol that you're going to now follow in Jesus' teaching. Okay? Notice the order there. Okay? So what do these little groups do? They form together around their, their disciples. They've all been baptized, and they're now under Jesus' teaching, under the apostles' teaching. And what are these little groups? What would we call those little groups that are forming together or devoted around the apostles' teaching, that are breaking bread and praying? Yeah, churches! <laughs> now, I'm half black. You guys got to interact, okay? Like, I mean, you know, I'm, asking, I'm not just asking these rhetorically. I, I want you to speak out, all right? They call them churches. These little groups, they got together and devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they baptize people, they disciple people, they continue to teach them all Jesus' commands. These what we would call these churches. That's what you guys are right now. This is what we're doing right now. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we're baptizing people, we're teaching people all Jesus' commanded. So if this is what the original Christians are doing, it's going to probably sound like a simplistic question here again, but what should we be doing? These same things. Yeah, yeah, the same things. Okay? So now, let me flesh this out for you a little bit. I grew up in church, okay? My mom became a Christian in college, so she decided to raise her children in the church. And every church that I was a part of served a different purpose in my life as a Christian. One church taught me the gospel. And another one that taught me the gospel, uh, you know, and another one baptized me. And then others, uh, other churches continued teaching me the things that Jesus commanded. So when I showed up here at Treasuring Christ Church, and I don't know how long ago that was, like 2006? So, yeah, <laughs> 11 years ago. Um, this was not the first church to teach me the gospel or to even baptize me but I would say it was vitally instrumental in teaching me the teachings of Christ and taking me deeper into my faith. And there were various aspects of my life, especially my Christian life, that were very confusing before I came here to Treasuring Christ Church. And I'm thankful that the saints and the elders here at Treasuring Christ Church invested so much time into my life. And I say the saints and the elders, because many times we can be tempted with that to kind of compartmentalize out and professionalize teaching the gospel. Oh, that's something the elders, the pastors are supposed to do. No, there were people in this very room who were vitally important to helping me shape out my faith. I, I saw Conrad this morning coming in. He was vitally important in showing me what an older saint looks like. <laughs> I hope I can be a faithful man like him when I'm his age. I see Dana over here and her husband, Robbie, who had to take one of their kids out. And I already saw that, you know, and uh, seeing the way that they, that was the first marriage I ever saw here at Treasuring Christ Church. And to see them working through it helped me 
think about how to work through the first parts of my marriage as well. So I say it's not just the elders, it is the saints as well who help flesh out your faith for you. And so TCC was and is, in my mind, a Matthew 28 church. I was here watching them baptize people, disciple people, and teach them all that Jesus commanded. So my time here and the things I learned here were so wonderful. And I developed a passion to go share it with others. And this is where point two begins to emerge. The first is the hermeneutical reason to plant churches, and the second is the dangerous reason, the dangerous reason. Now, once again, right, here goes the shock value guy, <laughs> right? Dangerous reason? Dangerous? Come on. Well, you know, I could have called it the historical reason, but I didn't think it was quite as, you know, exciting, you know, provoking as dangerous. Because the heartbeat of, of this point is that I think there is a subtle warning in the New Testament that if we don't plant churches, we could get ourselves into trouble. And this not only fleshes itself out in the New Testament, but it will come to fruition. You see the seeds of it in the New Testament, and then it comes to fruition in church history. So now the pattern in the New Testament particularly in the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, the description of the, what the early Christians, early churches were doing, is wherever the word increased, okay, so wherever the word increased, the amount of disciples increased, and then churches were formed. That was the, the pattern of the New Testament. We've already kind of explored that a little bit in looking at Matthew 28, okay? So the word goes out, it increases, so they spread the word of the gospel, Disciples, more disciples are made, and then church, little churches are formed. So let's compare two churches where the word was taught in the book of Acts. The two most influential churches in the New Testament are the church, the Jerusalem church, and the Antioch church. These are the two most influential churches in the New Testament. Now let me just put a little test out here. I did this in the first service, not in my notes, but I'm going to you know, just follow the Spirit's leading here, okay? Do you see any churches of Jerusalem around nowadays? Churches named the Church of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Church. Well, you see plenty of Antioch churches, don't you? Right? We see churches, like little churches of Antioch. I mean, there's Antioch College over right near Dayton. Okay, I mean, there's little Antioch things all over the place, right? But we don't see Jerusalem. I'm just going to clue you in right there a little bit, okay? So let's follow the pattern. This first church that was formed in the New Testament was the Jerusalem church, okay? Now, as far as I can tell, you can go back and look at the scriptures yourself, but as far as I can tell, the, church, the Jerusalem church, okay, the church in Jerusalem, never intentionally planted churches. Not one. They did not set somebody apart. They didn't say, hey, we need to spread the, you know, we need to spread the gospel, we need to spread this good news, we need to go send some, some people out to plant churches, we need to spread the word, okay? As far as I can tell, they don't do that. Instead, they become more focused on doctrinal traditions related to the Mosaic Law. Go read Acts 15 if you want to see an example of that. The Jerusalem church later became known uh, as a group called the Ebonites. This is what we learned from church history. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the Christ. 
the son of the living God. But they believed that Christians needed to keep the Mosaic law to be Christians. They were deemed as heretics by the early church. The Ebonites or the Jerusalem church were more concerned with extra biblical traditions than maintaining the purity of the gospel and spreading the gospel. And so they fade into the background in church history. Let's remember our promise from Matthew 16. Right? The Son, the living God. And on this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So who killed off the Jerusalem church? God did. (laughs) You're not going to preserve the message of my son taking you out? Bottom line. You see, this church wanted to advance extra-biblical traditions, and so they started to distort the gospel. And God will not allow churches to continue that are distorting the message about his son. He cannot allow it. And if we are honest with ourselves, there are still churches today that become very inward focused and they're more concerned with keeping traditions that are extra biblical, just like the Ebonites. So as the modern church and as Christians today, need to be aware of this trend and this temptation in church history. And pay attention to the warnings. Learn from Scripture. Learn from history. Look to see what God is doing. That's the first church in the New Testament, the Jerusalem church. The second church, as I mentioned earlier, the second most influential church is the church in Antioch. We learn from Acts 11 that the only that, that God took the Jerusalem church and said, okay, if you won't intentionally plant churches, I'll do it. So he persecuted them, <laughs> and then they spread. <laughs> and they went around preaching the word wherever they went. Okay, that's what the word tells us. All right? And then we learn from Acts 11 that some of those Christians went to a place called Antioch. And when they got there, they began to teach the gospel, to spread the word of God. And people there started to begin to express faith in Christ. And then when they expressed faith in Christ, what did they do? They baptized them. (laughs) They literally sent Barnabas there to to go check to see, okay, are these guys really expressing faith in Christ? And they were like, no, their faith is genuine. So he baptized them. And then what they continued to do, they continued to teach them all that Jesus commanded. In fact, this church was so white hot, on fire for the Lord. They wanted to learn the Bible so much. They wanted to learn about Jesus so much that they kind of imported in a great Bible teacher, a guy named Paul. Maybe you've heard of him, right? Barnabas goes and finds him and says, hey, I got a bunch of people here that want to know the word. Will you come over and teach them? Help me. Like, I, like they're asking questions I can't answer. I need like a really good scholar to come over here and like answer these guys' questions. And so Paul comes over and he starts teaching people in Antioch. And Acts 11.26 actually tells us this is the first place where believers in the New Testament are ever called Christians. Just means little Christ, people who want to be like Jesus. 
but I want to focus on a passage that I think will help, be, uh, help us understand the heartbeat and the spiritual sensitivity of this church. So turn with me to Acts 13. We'll see what God does through the church of Antioch here. Acts 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Acts 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Right, so there's some leaders there. Barnabas, we've heard of him, we've already mentioned him. Simon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, who also is known as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. In verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So, what do we see here? The leaders of this church are praying, are worshiping, fasting. And what do they, they just want to hear a word from God, right? So what, what does this text tell us about God? God speaks to his people. He tells them what to do, <laughs> right? And what does he tell them to do? What does the Holy Spirit press on their heart? Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when, as we follow the narrative of Acts, what was the word or what was the work to which he had called them? Go start churches. <laughs> they go around and they plant churches. Follow the narrative. Watch what these guys do. They're going from city to city to city, and they're starting little gospel communities all over their place. Now, the first thing that they did was it, it tells us there in verses 4 and 5, they went about proclaiming the word. And when they went about proclaiming the word, what did people do? They accepted the gospel. Then what did they do? They baptized them. And then what happened out of that? They formed little gospel communities. Okay, People gathered around the word to learn more of the teaching. And what do we call those, friends? Churches. Churches. Yes. Do we notice the pattern here once again? They go around proclaiming the word. People accept it. They baptize. They form little gospel communities. Churches. So, let's, let's follow the trajectory here as modern Christians. Should we be modeling our gospel communities, our churches, like the church in Jerusalem or like the one in Antioch? Antioch, yeah, that's the right answer, guys. Yep. You got it. See, Antioch became the church planting hub for Paul. He would go out and plant church, and he would spread the word across the world, the known world, but he would always come back to his home church and give them updates, to get encouragement, to get strengthened again, and so much more, and then he would go back out and spread the word again, baptize people, and start churches. And so, some of you may have this in the back of your Bible. Some of you may not. I know the Bibles are starting to get rid of them now, but I find them super helpful. 
Some of you may have in the back of your, your Bibles Bible maps. Right, little Bible maps where it talks about, hey, here's what you know it looked like during Abraham's time. Here's what it looked like during Moses' time. And so maybe in some of your Bible maps you have Paul's missionary journeys. And what you'll see there is Paul will go out on a journey and then he'll come back to Antioch. And then he'll go out on another journey farther out and then he'll come back to Antioch. And then he'll go further out in these centricate circles and just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then he'll go back to Antioch. Antioch was his home church. It's where he was sent out from and he would go back to them to encourage them, to let them encourage him. And then he would go and continue to spread the word. So first we saw the hermeneutical reason. Second, we saw the dangerous reason. We want to have the warning of against becoming the Jerusalem church. No, we want to be an Antioch church. Third is the natural reason. The natural reason. There's two final reasons I want to discuss here why we plant churches. And I, my hope is I can pick up pace a little bit because they're not as word heavy. Uh, they're just wisdom. So we must never forget that when it comes to uh, thinking about church, when it comes to thinking about a church, that it is not a building. It's not a place. It's not an institution. It is a people. Right? Okay? You guys are further enough along now. I don't know if some of you know, because there's some, you know, Ben warned me about this. I was going to see a bunch of faces I didn't know. Yes, true. A bunch of faces I don't know. There's some faces I do know. Okay? So I know there are some people know what I'm going to say when, I'm, when I say this, that this used to be a church plant. Some people remember that, okay? This used to be a church plant. It used to be a little tiny group. In fact, you know, Amy and I were driving in today, and I said, oh, TCC used to meet over there. And then they used to meet over there. Uh, and I was past that little community center over there. It was, like, super hot, and the fans were gone. And we were like, oh, my goodness, God, give us some air conditioning. <laughs> you know, like, right? We remember those days? So it used to be a church plant, right? And that was very early on that we learned that the church is not a building. It's a people. That's right. We, we, we had five locations in six years or something like that. I mean, it was crazy. Okay? Remember the elders even asking, I don't know how we're keeping all these people, but you know, because we can't, you know, they don't, they don't know we're going to be every Sunday. <laughs> right? And I, I've gone through that similar to myself, you know, where we changed locations, you know, three times in four years. And now we have a building. You have a building. Okay? But we have to remember that when we get a building, that the, the building is not the church. And that used to frustrate me when I first got there to Dayton and I was planting churches. People were like, oh, well, just tell me when you have a building. I'll come check you out. I'm like, ah, no! <laughs> church is not a building! Yeah, that's right. Even kiddo over there has got it, right? Church is not a building. We've got to keep that in mind, that the church, you know, like any Thing that God has put and created, or it's an organism. Okay? And when we study organisms in nature, we learn that healthy organisms multiply. Don't they? Right? Healthy organisms multiply. And I say healthy because when an organism is not healthy, it won't multiply. Right? The plant grows up, seeds sprout out, and you get more plants. I see... Little, little ones in the room, right? Some people came together, had a very joyous relationship, and they multiplied that joy. They said, hey, let's bring some more people in. Yeah, this is a good time. Bring little 
ones into the world. <laughs> Let's multiply the joy, right? And that's what healthy organisms do. God has built this idea into created order. And so if the church is an organism, it should multiply. That joy should spread. And many times people want to focus their energy and efforts into things that are dying instead of things that will bring life and flourishing into the world. Now what I, I don't want to do here is, you, is you know, I've got some silver-haired saints in the room. I don't want to say you're not important. Okay, we love you, right? Yeah, yeah. amen, Catherine. My wife was super excited to see you today. So. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're not, we don't want to be cold and indifferent to some of our older churches, okay? But I'm going to agree with Ed Stetzer, the famous church planting professor, who says having a baby is much easier than raising the dead. Isn't it? Hey, it took Jesus dying on a cross and God raising him by the power of the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. It took Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world to see death was working backwards and he takes Lazarus and he takes Jairus' daughter and he raises her from the dead. I mean, that takes a miracle. <laughs> so we must not forget this principle. We cannot forget the Great Commission text we examined earlier, that Jesus' expectation for the church is that they will multiply disciples. And that's why I say, okay, our, our silver-haired saints can still do that, <laughs> right? But if a church is not willing to multiply disciples or they're distorting the gospel, then Jesus has every right to let that church die. Because they're not carrying out what he has commanded, not carrying out the Great Commission. Now, as we move on here, once again, Ed Stetzer says this. This is important when we start to think about this natural reason to plant churches, okay? Because we want to think about it organically, okay? We don't plant churches first, okay? That's not the goal, to plant churches. The goal is to plant the seed of the gospel and then churches form. Let's not forget that. Okay? When you plant the gospel into a community that is inept of the gospel, okay, or doesn't have much gospel access, churches form out of that. You see, the gospel is the seed that we plant into the ground, and the fruit of that seed are churches. Churches form out of that seed being planted. As far as I know, Treasuring Christ Church has done this since day one. They planted the gospel all across this region, right? And then what formed out of that? You guys, hopefully, if you've been at Treasuring Christ long enough, I hope that you guys still do this. You have little groups. What are they called? Community groups. And what is taking place there. What are you guys talking about in the community groups? The gospel, yes. <laughs> so we've got all these little gospel communities all over the region, right? And they sent out church planters across the globe. Okay? We've sent out church planters to Turkey, right? When I was first here, there was one in Armenia. 
Now there's a church planner in Dayton. There's a church planner in Chicago. Right? And so the gospel has come into these people's lives and then they take it out. So both the people who stay in this region, the Raleigh-Durham Triangle, Research Triangle, the people who go out, they're all taking the seeds of the gospel wherever they go. So whether you stay or whether you go, you're there to plant the seeds of the gospel. So when I went out from Treasuring Christ Church, as been mentioned in 2011, it was to take the gospel to a city, as far as I could tell, that was that didn't have much gospel access. In the in urban core of Dayton, there were not there was maybe three evangelical churches that were actually preaching a pure gospel, and even some of those were a little distorted. Three. For our 150,000 people, there were three churches. That's a need. Now, over the course of five years, we've baptized about five people on average. So over the course of six years, that's about 30 people that we've baptized. Those are not huge numbers, but that is 30 more people who have access to the gospel or growing in their affections for Jesus. Now, I would say some of those numbers might even be a little bigger <laughs> if we didn't have so many Jerusalem churches in Dayton. Because I've had people who've said this to me. I grew up in church my whole life, and until I came to refuge, I never heard the gospel. Whoa. Hmm. Fascinating. Now, I could not convince those people that they needed to be baptized because they already thought they were believers. <laughs> but they had never heard the gospel before. Interesting. In fact, one time I had a 50-year-old man that told me, he said, John, when I heard you preach the gospel to me and my family, it saved my life. Now, many of these people would say things to me like, I, I had this deep hole in my heart. And when I heard the gospel you preach, I got filled up. Sounds like conversion to me, doesn't it? <laughs> I just couldn't convince these people to get baptized. That man, for instance, he had been gone to various churches over a course of 40 years. Had even been an elder in a church that had never really heard the gospel. But I couldn't convince him to be baptized. So thankfully, when we learn the gospel, right, we learn that it's not baptism that saves people, is it? It's the gospel. I'm not worried about their souls. And so what I'm trying to, to show you here as we consider this little narrative is that there are people who will hear the gospel for the first time because all they've ever known is Jerusalem churches, Ebonite churches, people who add stuff to the gospel. One of the greatest church planners in North American you know, recent history is a guy, I believe, uh, one of the greatest is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller says, when you think through how to contextualize and proclaim the gospel to people's heart language, you will preach the gospel to them 
and they will sound like something they've never heard before. And I remember reading that before I went out to go plant. And in the six years since I've left TCC, I have found that to be very true. That don't think that just because you're in the Bible Belt and you're surrounded by a bunch of people who know the Bible well and claim to, to know Jesus well, that they really have been saved by the finished work of Christ. Don't assume that. And go with the Billy Graham stat if you have to, that maybe about 25% of people who go to churches are actually saved. There are lots of people out there who have just been going to Jerusalem churches, going to Ebonite churches, and add all this extra stuff onto the gospel. And it would be a shame for us, whether here in Raleigh or in Dayton or across the globe, to let people just die thinking that they're that close to God when they are far away from him. So TCC planted these pure seeds of the gospel in my heart, and so I saw the need to go plant these seeds in other people's hearts. <laughs> and it's just natural. It's organic. And when you have joy in something, you spread that joy. You enjoy a good movie, you go tell people about it. When you enjoy a good meal, a new restaurant that opened up in the area, you're like, you've got to go try this restaurant. They will never lose a taste for Jesus. Jesus is good. you got to try him. He's awesome. You see, a healthy organism multiplies, takes the joy it experiences, and like the prophet Jeremiah, it has this burning, white-hot message on its heart to say, I gotta give this away, I gotta give this away, I gotta give it away. And so if God has placed true affection on your heart for Jesus, you want to give it away. Which brings me to my last reason, final reason. Why do we plant churches? Hermeneutical reason, the dangerous reason, the natural reason, and the caring reason. So here's the honest truth, friends. Alright, I know it's maybe sound kind of cliche-ish. But if you really believe the message of the gospel, then there are people outside that wall, that wall, that wall, and that wall that are dying. They're dying. They're walking zombies. <laughs> They're the walking dead. And it would be a shame on us. It would be heartless have a cure for an epidemic disease that's all over this region and to say, ah, no, not really my concern. I've got the gospel. I'm good. We've got the gospel in our little holy huddle. We're good. No, the gospel is something that it truly means something to us. We, we give it away. It was given to us. None of you were born out of the womb with the gospel in your heart. <laughs> Someone preached it to you. Somebody gave it to you as a gift, and you accepted it. Shame on us if we just keep it to ourselves. If we don't care. If somebody cared about us enough to give it to us, why would we deny people access to the gospel? Why would we deny them the opportunity to live, to live with God for eternity? For true human flourishing. We haven't seen true human flourishing yet. I mean, look at all the technology. We look at the screens and the 
the cell phones we've got. Can you imagine what we're going to do when we don't have the constraints of sin in the world? <laughs> we haven't seen human flourishing yet. <laughs> the closest we've seen it is Christ. Jesus, I remember my hermeneutics professor telling me, reality is Jesus walking on water. It's not people not walking on water. You imagine that with your sanctified imagination? Imagine getting out like Peter and just walking in the storm and say, hey, settle down. Peace be still. <laughs> Jesus was the prototype of what humanity is supposed to be. So in our country, church planting, I believe, is still important. I've made a case for that because I think there are a lot of Jerusalem churches. If you remember, there's a lot of churches out there that distort the gospel. And people have either walked away from the faith because they're like, I can't keep all those rules. I can't wear my hair a certain way, and I can't wear a certain, you know, I've got to wear a skirt down to here and cover my ankles. You know, there's churches out there that preach this stuff, guys. <laughs> and they're confusing people, or they're, they're, or they're, People who are a part of those churches think that they're saved, and they're not. Because they got this, this distorted, skewed gospel. So church planting in our country is important because there are plenty of people who are still dying. They're confused. But even more important is planting churches across the world. Because people can still travel 30, 45 minutes an hour even if they have to, to get to a gospel-preaching church here in America. There's people across the world, it takes days for them to get to a gospel community. They have little to no access to the gospel. So we need men and women who are willing to carry the seeds of the gospel across the world, across the globe. And when they do that, when they carry the seeds of the gospel, what will form? Churches. And sometimes people like to pin these two things against each other, national church planting and international church planting. The Bible doesn't do that. Let's not forget in the, the New Testament, in the book of Acts, were there not people who were called God-fearers in the New Testament? People like Cornelius and Paul, or, or sorry, Peter was up on the, on the house on the rooftop praying. And God told him, said, hey, go preach the gospel to Cornelius. Right? There's people who are God-fearers in our country, but, and they, they think that they know God, but they don't. They're far from him. And so they need the gospel. They need someone to come along and to preach the gospel to them. But Paul also had on his heart to go and to proclaim the gospel to people who had never heard of God. There are people all over the globe that you, you I mean, you go to a Hindu nation, and you say, hey, Jesus is God. They're like, cool. Yeah, we'll accept him. <laughs> I've got 250 million gods. I'll mind that on another one. So just even explaining monotheism in that culture is going to be hard. Versus here in our country, you, you, you mentioned God. And we may be talking about a different God, but they understand the idea of monotheism. But there's people across the world who don't, have never even heard of God. You're going to have to even define for them, like, what, what is God? Keep using this term. What does that even mean? So no matter what, whether we stay in this country or you stay here in this church, you go out across the country to plant a church or whether you go across the globe, wherever you go, you plant the seed of the gospel. 
when you watch Christ go to church. That's the goal. Right? That we take the seed of the gospel to every corner of the earth and we watch Christ grow churches. Now we can't forget that this promise was built on what I said in Matthew 16, right? At the beginning. When Jesus said, I am the son of the living God, or Peter said that about Jesus, he said, you're right. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So like I said, whatever you, whether you stay or whether you go, that's what you're here to do. Plant the seeds of the gospel and watch little gospel communities come up. So today, you know, as you guys do every Sunday, you're gonna, we're going to take a, a family meal together. Why do we call it a family meal? We call it a family meal because it's for those who make that same declaration that Peter made. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Ben and the, the, ben are, <laughs> ben and the band are going to make their way back up. And as they make their way back up, you're going to take some time, meditate, and think through how Jesus might be calling you right now to what, where do you need to go plant the seed of the gospel in your community? Help form new gospel communities right here. New churches maybe even. Right here in the Raleigh-Durham area. If a gospel explosion happened right across town, yeah, I'm sure the elders would be like, yes, let's, let's, we need to start strategizing how to, there's a huge gospel community forming over here. So take this time to think through what this meal might mean for you. The seed of the gospel has come to you through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Think through where you're supposed to go carry the gospel. Let me pray for us, and then why don't we take this meal together today? Father, I thank you so much that you have planted the seed of the gospel in our hearts. And no matter where we go, you've called us to carry it, to take it with us, to spread the joy of Jesus, your son, to every corner of the earth. And as we do that, we watch little gospel communities form. We watch little churches form. And it's beautiful. May we not keep this to ourselves, but may we spread your name, your fame, your glory, because you deserve it. May we take this meal together to remember what Christ has done on the cross, that in his blood there is life. Thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.